This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Who knew Lord Byron's daughter was a math whiz who created one of the very first algorithms? Who knew that Thomas Paine, after fueling the American Revolution, aided the French Revolution and ended up jailed and penniless? And where did the station wagon go? Or Ron Howard's TV brother on Happy Days? And why, on top of it all, did Prussia just disappear? These facts and tons more are all discovered in Mo Rocca's new book, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. Mr. Rocca is a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, a host and creator of My Grandmother's Ravioli on the Cooking Channel, host of Henry Ford's Innovation Nation on CBS, host of of the podcast Mobituaries with Mo Rocca, a panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and now he manages to bring his wit, enthusiasm, and curiosity to this exuberant book. Moraka, welcome to Just the Right Book. I feel rude for not hosting you today. I host so much. But we have some Nature Valley protein bars in front of us. Can I pretend like I brought them for you? Exactly. Exactly. That's a lot to do, Mo. Yeah. You know, look, I'm just trying to fill the hole inside. And yeah. we'll get there eventually. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that this was not the first question I was going to ask you, but I'm going to, is as I was reading this book and reading about you, I kept picturing the eight-year-old you. Like, what were you like as a little kid? I loved the World Book Encyclopedia, the 1974 World Book Encyclopedia. So I'd come home um, starting in elementary school and certainly into junior high, and I would lie on my stomach on the red carpet in the family room and just page through the 1974 World Book Encyclopedia, memorizing the facts in brief. I learned um, – they would tell you like the average income, the currency, the capital city, um, chief exports. Um, and from an early age, I prided myself on memorizing all the world capitals. And when the Soviet Union fell apart in 1990, I almost had a nervous breakdown. Because then you all, had to learn a bunch of new ones. All those stands. There was yeah. like a cascade <laughs> of them. But um, but I – yeah, I so I liked – I always liked trivia. I loved when the Almanac would come out every year. Yeah. Not the farmer's and Almanac. And do you have a good memory? I do have a good memory. Yeah. I have a good memory – I mean this might seem obvious, but I have a good memory for things that I'm actually interested in. And, and that goes for people. Like sometimes people will say to me, friends that I haven't seen in a long time will say, how do you remember that? And then I say to myself, oh, my God, that's because I really like you. And then sometimes I discover this is a – it sounds like a dour thing to say. When I don't remember something about a person, then I think, oh, my God, maybe I don't really like you You as much. Or or the way – another way to think of it that might be kinder is there's nothing memorable to attach to. (laughs) Is that kinder? Oh, you mean? Yeah, because maybe. I like you. You're just so uncharismatic. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, well, when you, when I was reading uh, in your book where you talked about the 1974 World Book um, Encyclopedia, and we'll come back to an entry there that uh, that you read. So I remember we had the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now I'm that much older than you. So I got my family got the first World Book. Like in 1950-something, 60, 61. I should look up what year. Yeah. But it was white compared to the brown, dreary Encyclopedia Britannica. But I did start reading it at A. It and it 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 fills. It was you so up. crispy and wonderful. Oh, it was wonderful. The 1974 um, had was a little more beige, or maybe that's because it's it's. I've had it for so long. I still have it actually. Yeah. So maybe it's just turned a beige color with a little bit of a brown trim. But yeah, I, but I when it. I got it, when my parents got it for us, it was like so modern. You know, it just looked compared to yeah. the Encyclopedia Britannica. We, we had both. Right. Well, the Encyclopedia Britannica felt more like a heavy-duty reference guide exactly. to me. And when I'd see it at the at the Little Falls Library in Bethesda, Maryland, I thought it also because it was I wanted an American encyclopedia. Now, the World Book felt <laughs> felt more somehow it felt more appropriate. The it, Britannica felt like something like, "Oh, that's for British people to read." I know that's that's not correct, but yeah. for some reason, the World Book felt more Approachable, yeah. To me, to and the pages were different. The font was different. I remember feeling because I was comparing them right away, right. And I was like nine. Or, no, I was probably ten. Did Britannica? Britannica? Did it have glossy pages? Because the World Book, the pages were nice and glossy. You know what? I remember that in the World Book, but I don't know. I don't know the answer on the encyclopedia. Uh, we should find this out. Uh, I think it was more of a matte finish. Those pages, which might not have felt, uh, which might not have felt as fun. All right. Yeah. So now that we've established that. Did about- somebody show up at your house? Because I, my mother tells me, I can't remember because I was only five years old when we got the 1974 edition, but that somebody, a woman showed up. Oh, yeah. Like a door-to-door. It, it, but I think that it was unsolicited. She sort of knocked on the door to sell it to us, and then she came back. Then it no, was that's sent to true. us. That's true. Like that's how it happened. Did. Yeah. yeah. That's how it happened. And my parents were new to this country. And so they were, you know, to them, this was like what they could do for us, right? Give us all this knowledge in these books. I thought you were from Wyoming. (laughs) (laughs) So they, they, um, yeah, Yeah. they came to the door and sold it. Where did your parents come from? Hungary. From Budapest? Uh, No, outside Budapest. It's like, as friends of mine uh, joke, that their families before the Holocaust were like rabbis in business owners. My parents were peasants. Okay. <laughs> they were outside of Budapest. By the way, are Buddha and Pasht rivals? No. They're on different sides of the river, I think. Yeah, they're on different sides of the river, and they have different sensibilities. One sort of the capital with all the big buildings, and the other is hilly and beautiful mm. and, not, you know, still urban, mm. but it's it doesn't have parliament. It doesn't have all the I big the buildings. Like and the, the communists, when they came into Hungary, didn't do quite the amount of damage. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So should no. we get to your book? Sure, of course. Okay. I'd love to. So let's start with a very simple question. What is a mobituary? A mobituary is... Uh, an appreciation for someone that I or something that that didn't get the send off it deserved. Something or someone due, in my opinion, for a reevaluation or more simply put, a topic I'm interested in writing about. Yeah. So that makes me ask, 
how do you decide what to put in here? Like, have you kept notes over the years yes. knowing this was going to happen? I have definitely kept notes over the years of just little itty-bitty ideas that interest me, sometimes not so little itty-bitty. Um, and um, and I, I love to find ways, and I've found surprising ways to use them over the years. Oftentimes, they'll become the subject of a CBS Sunday morning story that I'll do. Um, and uh, But when I came up with this idea now about two years ago for both a podcast and a book, um, I – started just kind of culling ideas, some of which I'd written down, mm -hmm. and others that had just been in the back of my mind. They sort of spilled out. Um, I think over the years, I've learned to trust my gut and to say that if I'm interested in something and I put myself into it, there's a good chance I there can make— There is interest. Yeah, and yeah. there's a good chance that I, that I can— make that idea contagious, that I can mm -hmm. get other people interested in it. I used to go around college campuses doing a PowerPoint slideshow about the homes and grave sites of obscure presidents that I had visited. Um, because I got like really- Like Tyler and Harrison. All the guys between Lincoln people. and Teddy Roosevelt. And one, a couple of them were shot. They're usually from Ohio, lots of facial hair. And I found that- um, you know, there's no chance that the kids at these different schools before they came into the auditorium, if you'd ask them, are you going to be interested in a slideshow about obscure presidents? There's a there's a good chance. If you had asked most of the kids, I think, at these schools before they came to see my show, are you interested in a PowerPoint show about obscure presidents and where they're buried? I think I would have lost half the kids. Mm -hmm. But once I got them in and I put myself into it and talking about – the weird locations, the the unusual docents I had met, um, they they got excited as well, and it, it it taught me to to trust my gut, not completely. It's good to have outside people saying, "Wait a minute, maybe that's <laughs> no. not that interesting." <laughs> so. But you know what, Mo, I wonder if it's also about something else because as a bookseller, I always am getting always getting emails and calls and everything and visits, un, you know, unscheduled visits saying, everybody says, Rox, I need to talk to you because my story is so amazing. You know, and their stories are amazing. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I've learned in 30 years as a bookseller is there are a lot of amazing stories, but great storytellers can make great stories out of very little. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Right. And and in the hands of the wrong storyteller or writer, even the most riveting story isn't. Sure. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. And um, I'm glad it, it, it it's a bigger challenge, I think, to take a name in this case that everyone knows, let's say, an Audrey Hepburn. Right. Sure. Everyone knows her and loves her. We know that. Um, and we should talk about her. Right. Um, it, it's a bigger challenge, I think, and an exciting challenge to take somebody like that and say, here's a reason why you should listen to my version of her story. Mm. Um, it's actually easier, and I have in the book and in the podcast, a series of forgotten forerunners, um, what I call people who oftentimes didn't get any kind of send off, any acknowledgement at all and have been forgotten but did pioneering things. I mean, there, the listener or reader, I think, is – is um, is it's it's most likely going to be new information. And so it's I would hope it would be interesting. So let's talk about two examples. Yes. One is on the uh, forerunner, you have Elizabeth Jennings. Yes. Who 
I'd never heard of her. I found this story unbelievable. But if you can recall the details, start with what her obit said and then back it up. Okay, so she did have an obituary in the New York Times, and I believe it said um, colored woman who— Aged colored uh, woman, a, right? Yeah, a, aged colored woman. She So she died, on, on, uh, she died in 1901, and she did get an obituary, and the New York Times headline read, Aged colored teacher dead, Mrs. E.J. Graham, that was her married name, was prominent in antebellum race troubles here. And uh, the obit went on to note that, Quote, her whole life was devoted to the improvement of her race. Um, and that's more than a lot of these forgotten forerunners got. Um, but you wouldn't know from the obituary just how important a figure she was. I and lear- brave. And brave. And brave. I learned about her because I do like presidential trivia, especially when it's obscure. And I was reading about Chester Allen Arthur, who is um, – uh, the president who fills out the uh, um, James Garfield's term after Garfield is assassinated in, I guess, 1882. Um, and um, Chester Allen Arthur, though, who was if – you, if you've ever seen a picture of him, he has these amazing mutton chops. Yeah, I mean, like big, fat. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like the – like like like, like Brooklyn, a head of hair. Like a head of hair. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like serious Brooklyn hipster, like mutton right. chops. And – um, and he was a really unremarkable president. He burned all of his papers at the end of his term. Um, and one theory, and I did a story about it on CBS, is that uh, he was a- had actually been born in Canada, and so that he was ineligible to um, to be oh, president. Really? Right. And um, and there's there is some there is some compelling reason to believe that he may have been. Um, you can check out my story on YouTube about that, the CBS Sunday Morning Story. Um, in any case, he had a, a fairly undistinguished presidency the remainder of Garfield's term. But as a young man, I found this, and I think it was quite literally in a trivia book, he had represented a woman, an African-American woman named Elizabeth Jennings, who had been kicked off of a streetcar. Um, um, she'd been kicked out off. Um, Explain it, how the streetcars worked okay. in those days. Right. So in lower Manhattan, there were these horse-drawn streetcars. So they're not on tracks. They're horse-drawn carts, basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, And in the Five Points District – which people may know from that Martin Scorsese movie, yeah. um, Gangs in Gangs New York, of New York right. um, was a really dangerous, filthy, dirty area. And she happened to be boarding one there to go to her church. This is in 1854, um, to go to her church to play the organ, to rehearse um, at her church. Uh, and the rules then were that um, there were the sort of the regular streetcars, which were for white passengers, and then there were streetcars designated for co- what were called colored people, right? For non-white people, for African Americans. Um, and this is, a, a, remember, just right before the Civil War, um, she um, and in the North, and in the North, and in and which I think gets to why she's forgotten, um, but quote unquote respectable passengers. Um, well of any clothed. race, right? Exactly. Um, were um, were allowed to ride what we'll call the white streetcars, um, and she boarded one of these because that was the first available one, and there were seats, but the um, there was a driver and a conductor 
I think I have this right. Yeah. The conductor, an Irish immigrant, um, asked her to get off of the streetcar. And she said, I don't want to get off the streetcar. He said, you have to wait for a colored streetcar. A a streetcar for colored passengers did come right behind, um, but it was full. So she said, I'm not going to budge. They got into a scuffle. She actually managed to hold on. She was physically pushed off the streetcar, but managed to hold onto a window sash, pulled herself back on. So eventually the driver, who also wanted her off, rode straight away to a police officer Elizabeth Jennings pled her case with the with the police officer, but he helped physically throw her off as well. So she's thrown and hurt her. Hurt her. Thrown. She it tore her dress. Throw threw her onto the street um, where it, a particularly filthy street. Not that that, that to, to make matters even worse. Um, but her father. Uh, she came from a prominent family, a prominent African American family, and um, she and her father decided um, her her father who had some money because he was perhaps um, he was one of the first African-American holders of a patent for a version of dry cleaning, an early version of dry cleaning. They had money. They um, were prominent in their church and they raised money to sue the Third Avenue Railroad Company, which ran these streetcars. Um, They decided to sue in civil court because um, the precedent um, because then the the precedent would uh, would force would would force other railroad companies or many different railroad companies to change their rules. Um, she hired Chester Allen Arthur. They hired Chester Allen. He was Arthur a young attorney in New York in then. his twenties, right? Doesn't have you know pre mutton chops. He's clean shaven, so he's less interesting looking, but he's doing good work. And they hire him to represent her at court, and she wins. Yeah. Um, it's a very big deal because this and gets damages and gets and wins damages of I'm going to tell you the amount of two wins damages of two hundred and fifty dollars. The amount doesn't matter so much, but the precedent was set and the other railroad companies quickly followed suit. And this really leads shortly after the Civil War to the integration of the Transportation Authority in mm. New York City. This sort of spreads to other cities as well. It spreads to Philadelphia, um, uh, where the effort is led by um, a gentleman who is in another section of the book, one of the black early black congressmen of Reconstruction. Um, and uh, and what's what was what what popped out to me as soon as I saw this. One or two line factoid. I mean, really, this was a short item in this presidential trivia book. The date, 1854. So this is almost exactly 100 years before Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. Almost exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's 1955. I think I have that right. Yeah. So that's 1955. So – and I thought there was something kind of haunting, inspiring, Mm -hmm. but also haunting about – kind of that number 100. This happened 100 years ago. Why don't we know who this woman is? And why is it still a problem? <laughs> right, right. And um, one history professor from the University of Oregon that I spoke to said, listen, the North doesn't like to acknowledge its own mm. racist past. Um, you know, slavery had been legal in New York State until eighteen until eighteen twenty seven, right? Um, only thirty three years before, well, thirty four years before this um, incident. The, 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 well, right, or thirty four years before the outbreak of the Civil War, right? Um, 
I guess, 36 years before the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and, uh, um, and so that may be a reason why this incident doesn't show up in, say, high school history textbooks because it doesn't fit the neat narrative of South bad, North good. And it would have had to have become important then. In other words, it isn't – I mean, when you think about how history books were put together, they often are taking from information that already had some prominence. However, and this is not in the book. There, was, there wasn't room for it. Um, <laughs> that's probably not a good thing to say. But the um, – um, however, her birthday – was celebrated for a few years after that. Really? She was a known figure, and she also started the first— Well, she uh, did have an obituary in the New York Times. She had an obituary in the New York Times, and um, she started the first kindergarten for black kids yep. in New York in New City. York. Um, so she was a known figure, and they were prominent. Mm. They were a prominent family. It just faded away. Yeah. Now— there was the Civil War afterwards. There were yeah, big it was things distracting. happening. Right. There were big things that happened shortly thereafter. Um, but, you know, it's so it's a it's an interesting story and it's an interesting it's it's both an interesting story and the question of why it was. Forgotten and contextually, is interesting. it's interesting. Totally. Not only is it interesting on its own. So let's take a name that is very well known. Right. So Thomas Paine, the author of Common Sense. Right. And then I figured out. Something funny when you were uh, you mentioned in the book that Common Sense sold five hundred thousand copies. Yes. So I looked up the population in crazy. and the population was two and a half million, which would mean that that's the equivalent. So it's twenty percent of the population. Right. The population now is about three hundred million. That would be like selling 60 million copies of something today. Which is what Mobituaries is projected to sell in the first two <laughs> months. <laughs> well on its way. Well on and its, its way. And it's not even out. And that doesn't even include the audiobook, which, by the way, I read. And I think it did a pretty good job. Um, the, um, uh, no, it, when you also consider the literacy rate was much lower than, and Thomas Paine yeah. very shrewdly, smartly, brilliantly wrote it in sentences meant to be read aloud so that people who couldn't read were able to hear his message. I mean, this is the intellectual spark for um, the American Revolution. And, you know, it occurred to me that- And a lo- it's great to reread now. Yes. I read it last year. Right. Right. It is great. Yeah. I mean, it will it will it will get your blood pumping, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it'll get you it'll get you riled up. It'll it's a good way to wake up in the morning. Yeah. Right. With I don't have pump. to be any angrier than I am now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe you should move on to the rights of man or the age of reason. If you, <laughs> and then you can get even angrier. Um uh um, I really – I explain this in the book. Um, I put the CBS polling unit on it to ask people um, if they recognized Thomas Paine as a founding father. Mm. More people identified Abraham Lincoln as a founding father than Thomas Paine. Obviously, it's a trick. Right. It's a trick. And, and, and that's not meant to be snooty. I don't like those let's prove how stupid people are questions. It's not fair. Um, but – it is interesting that Thomas Paine, who was so important, you know, John Adams said about him, without without the pen of the author of Common Sense, the sword of Washington would have been raised in vain. Mm. 
You know, in other words, I like to say no. And that's contemporaneously written. That's not on reflection. Yeah, he ended up hating him later. Yeah, I know yeah. he did. <laughs> Everybody did. <laughs> he, ha- is, he ended up hating a lot of people. Payne ended up hating a lot of people, and a lot of people ended up hating Payne, which I think it, it is a big factor in why he isn't remembered and beloved like the other founding fathers mm-hmm. were. I mean, I think that it's interesting. You see that in politics today. You could call it You could call it agility. Um, or you could be, or, or you could call it something, you could characterize it as something more cynical, but you see this all the time. Activists who are, and this is an overused word, who pivot to statesmen, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you sort of see it, right, in, in campaigns. Yeah. Pri- you know, primary candidates who have to pivot and become, um, a little bit more amenable, a little more simpatico yeah. for a general election. Payne didn't have that. He was... Um, pure activist. He couldn't turn it off. Um, In fact, he went to find another revolution. Right. I mean, he was <laughs> after the American Revolution was won. He went off to England to agitate on behalf of the revolutionaries in France and eventually went to France and ended up in prison. But he couldn't, you know, whereas the other founding fathers said, we won, you know, we kicked, you know, we won, the week, you know, we, you know, we won, we're independent. Now we're going to get cushy jobs and, you know, um, start building the Georgetown cocktail party circuit. <laughs> and get, and get they said that right from the beginning. Yes. Like, let's, <laughs> let's start filling that swamp. You know, let's all get townhouses on M Street. And like, and so, and Payne was, and, and Payne didn't have that in him. Payne was the person and I have to admit this about myself. Payne is the person who at dinner on Saturday night, you have to turn to him and say, can we please just not talk about the issues now? Yeah. Can we just have a drink and relax? and Have fun. Yeah. And talk about the latest, you know, Spider-Man reboot, even though there's been way too many. Or you know, And, so, and Thomas Payne wouldn't do that. He'd Tom- say no. Thomas Payne would – no. Thomas Payne would have been Nancy Pelosi's or – any Republican speaker of the House is worst nightmare because it's fair to point out we, you know, it's not clear what side he'd be on. He was his own, yeah. right? He definitely wanted a smaller government, that's for sure. Um, but um, but uh, no, he just he couldn't turn it off. And I look, it's it's fun to write about because you get a sense. You know, Craig Nelson, wonderful biographer of his, talked to me um, about him and. Uh, and we talked to him also for the, for the podcast, and he said, "Yeah, he was he was a brilliant man. He could be very funny, but he also didn't know when to stop." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he ended up in jail. He ended in up France. in jail. He ended up in jail because of his, um, and that's a tribute to his integrity because the Jacobins love him, right? They think he's going to be their champion when he shows up in France, and. Uh, and he – but he is against the beheading of the king, of the French yeah. king. And, and they so, had just invented the guillotine. Which they loved. Yeah. Which they loved. Crisp, clean. For, yeah. Like yeah. can you imagine it on a head of lettuce? <laughs> that's the wedge salad I want. Like because I want it just Mo, really – that's, cr- that's awful. No, no. I want an actual wedge salad. <laughs> I'm just saying I want it crisply cut. I just saw you were moving to a place we shouldn't go. No, no. All right. All right. No, no cannibal. No, no people okay, were good, eaten in good, the making good. of the spark. Right. You had me worried there for a yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, okay, so we've dispensed with Thomas Paine, poor guy, but good to know and worth rereading Common Sense or totally, reading if yes. you've never read yes. it. Also, the Federalist Papers, beautifully written. Beautifully written. Yeah. But, you know, Hamilton gets enough love. That's true. That's I mean, true. You know, it's time to give Thomas Paine Yeah, but James Madison didn't get that much yes. love and he wrote a lot of it. No, and James Madison is our shortest president. He was like 5'4". Five, 5'4", four. Five, four. yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. a, and interestingly, he has a really tall tombstone. If you go to he does? to his estate Montpelier in Virginia, yeah, it's really tall, which I think is kind of funny because he's so short. It's not like tall like the Washington Monument, but I mean, it's not. It's I just anyway, it's sort of interesting. Yeah, he's so little. Okay, so now the other kind of thing that you talk about in the book are things that went away. Mm-hmm. So one of my pieces that I had great fun with was the station wagon yeah. because I remember we did have a Plymouth. And we had a Chrysler or a Dodge that actually had the drive and park buttons on the left-hand side. They were like – they would look like a um, like a phone pad. like a, And you would press the button. It would be drive and press the button. I think it was a Dodge Whoa. or a Chrysler. I, that I don't – yeah, it was at a Chrysler town and country. Could have been. Right, because those were really big. And then the Ford Country Squire. So also. what happened to the poor station wagon? And how long was it around for? So the station wagon really um, – you see station wagons and the, you see station wagons really at the beginning of the automobile. What would happen was people would take the chassis – of a Model T, and they go to an auto body shop or, mm. or woodworker, a bodybuilder, I should say, and uh, and not a not, not a bodybuilder, yeah, no, not the a, muscle an, kind, uh, yeah, an auto bodybuilder, and build the the passenger compartment out of wood because it was light enough. They didn't, um, you know, working with steel. Uh, they weren't yet wor- – automobiles weren't yet working primarily with steel. But anyway, so with the chassis of a Model T. Auto bodybuilders would build essentially a big wooden box. These were being used initially um, by resorts to ferry passengers mm. from the train station to the hotel. That's so their go- luggage would go in there. Right, and and families. But this is why it was known as a station wagon because people were being ferried from a train a station. station. Right. To where they were going to end up staying, um, and uh, and then eventually you you get into and a lot of people fondly remember. I'm happy to report I'm too young to remember this, but the Woodies of the 1920s, 30s, and mm-hmm. 40s. Even I'm too young to right, know to that. remember those. Um, the first station wagon that's really primarily marketed to families is the Plymouth Suburban in 1949, mm-hmm. post baby boom, um, and then it becomes. Then it becomes sort of the American dream, the family vehicle at that point. Uh, and long. 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 Yeah. The, um, long. the Plymouth, the, the, the Ford Country Squire was – the Ford Country Squire was about 19 feet long. I mean that is a behemoth, right? And so I remember in the early 70s, we had one. It was probably a Chevrolet. My father loved Chevys. We had it for a very short time and when my mother took my brother Lawrence – to the doctor, to Dr. Wondolo, who was this pediatrician, she says, I believe her, certainly, and my mother doesn't lie, that um, that when she brought my little – my older but then little, very young, when she brought my brother out and put him in the back seat, not the way back, but in just the regular back Where seat. Where there were no seat belts. Right. 
And we'll get to that because I love that. But she claims that – she says that when she put him in the back seat, it started rolling backward. She jumped into the front seat and she pulled the emergency brake. Um, I'm not sure how accurate the story is because I know that parking lot and it's pretty flat. But in any case, my father, who was very safety conscious, they both were. That was the end of that car. The end of it. Traded it right in the morning that we were going to drive up to Prince Edward Island, um, um, and which we love to go to before it had a bridge. So you had to take a ferry. But anyway, so that was the end of the station wagon. I can barely remember what I think was either a yellow or cream colored station wagon. But to me, I think because of the Brady Bunch, that TV show, I always equated the station wagon with fun, happy families. And everything being just right. Everything just working. Like yeah. it, it, it's everything that – it, Mom singing, yes. the radio on. A dog All coming. the kids loose in the back. Yeah. And so I have memories of being in other families station, wag- station wagons in the way back because where else would you want to be? And I would just love if the driver, if the mom or the dad would make a really wide turn because then you would just ricochet off the side. I mean like – and especially if other kids were back there just pinballing against each other. I just loved that out-of-control feeling. Yeah. And when I think about it, we were six kids. And six. so, and so we'd jealous. be like loose all over the car. So you had what was you, you, yours was you think it was a suburban? We or always Chrysler, had Chrysler, station wagons. So did. we always our first car was a nineteen forty nine green Hudson sedan. Oh, nice. Right. Then we moved to Connecticut, and then we started with the station wagons in nineteen fifty seven. Did Connecticut legally allow families to have six children? <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. I think we had to like say different numbers. But the three of you were the help. But you know, six kids would fit in the car, right? Because they were all loose. You so could, how many were you? Of and you, you wanted to back. be in the way back. What? Where were you in the birth order? Where are you? I, in, I was the oldest. You're the oldest. Don't I seem bossy like an oldest kid? I mean, I, I, could be. Yeah, but so you, so you could you you could demand a, a space in the way back. Right. But you know what? I was that kind of kid. I didn't want a space in the way back because I want to sit in the back seat and read. So how many kids would just stuff in the way back? Three could go in the way. Three <gasps> would go in the way back. And were they were they just ping-ponging off yeah. each other? Yeah. I mean, when you think about it now with all the safety, they were ping. But you know what? I shouldn't say this, but nobody ever got hurt. Right. Same here. I mean, I think partly those cars were built like fortresses. I think so, too. I, I mean, think I don't so know too. what they weighed, but they must have weighed a lot. Well, you know, it's interesting that the curator of transportation, a wonderful guy named Matt Anderson at the Henry Ford Museum, who I talked to for this, told me, he said, you know, you never know what vehicle will come back. He said, you know, the problem with the SUV is that it gives you a feeling of invincibility. And there have been studies that show that it makes you actually a more dangerous driver and a threat to other people. Interesting. And they can also, as we know, many that of them makes have practical sense. risks. Yeah. They ma- that makes practical yeah. sense. Like yeah. you sort of take on the persona of this great big macho vehicle. You think you're short scoff, right? And that, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we run out of time, Oh, I, this can go on and on, I know, but I don't I know. want to make your editors crazy. So here's here's a couple of tidbits that I want to make sure we get to. One of the fun facts I learned here is I never understood why Yankee Doodle had the word macaroni. Right. Because why would a feather in my cap and call it macaroni work? So help us understand how that might happen. And you got to... Um, 
Well, okay. One of the things that's interesting about Thomas Paine is um, he sort of um, repurposes. He um, how, what's the word that I want to use? He kind of takes back. He reclaims, or maybe claims in the first place, the word American, which until that time, or at that, the word American at the time of the American Revolution kind of meant a hick, mm-hmm. um, oh. a redneck. Um, he makes it a much prouder word, right? And it's and it may be also that, by the way, he, he's the reason we're called the United States of America. He's the first person to use that those words in a publication. Um, but um, um, the song "Yankee Doodle Dandy" was making fun of um, of Americans of Hicks from the other side of the ocean. Um, thinking that they were sophisticated and not knowing any better. Um, at the time, and this is in the era of this comes up in the obituary for Beau Brummel, there were these fashion squads, um, men who probably didn't have student loans to pay off. They had way <laughs> too much money and too much time on their hands and they would dress in outrageous – To the nines. Yeah. Like almost like if you've ever seen that documentary Paris is Burning or something. I mean mm-hmm. – so, and RuPaul probably would have had them on his show. Um, and with names like Muscadin, Muscadines and – I want to remember the – I want to make sure that the ones with the – OK. Well, some were one, – one squad was called the Muscadines. But the others were called the Macaronis and they had – Wigs. They had hair that was piled very, very, very high. Um, think dangerous liaisons, but and then increase the height of that hair yeah. threefold. And then on top, and on top, they had a little itty bitty hat. Right. What was the point? Well, what is the point of high fashion anyway? And I, you know, I say that respectfully, but it was it, it, clearly at the time people thought it was beautiful, it was interesting, and um, and so Yankee Doodle is making fun of um, uh, uh, wait the, the lyric um, put a feather in his hat and <laughs> and call it macaroni, <laughs> right? Making fun of of a poser, an American, a striver, yeah, thinking that by putting a feather in his he cap, too had. That he the was high as, fashion. that he was as fashionable as a macaroni. Yeah, I love that little tidbit. And then um, the other little tidbit: Why did corsets go away? Corsets went away because um, the metal that was being used in them was needed for World War One. So that was the end of that. That was the end of them. So a lot of fashions, and the, uh, also hobble skirts, which quite literally hobbled women. It's I, I I I couldn't believe that when I read that in the book. Right, cinched right below the knee, so yeah, that you very helpful for walking. Uh, right, I mean they they <laughs> quite literally hobbled women, um, and those went away because hobbled women weren't really as useful as they could be during the war effort in helping to build armaments. So there they went. They went, yeah. So, so the war, the Great War, World War One liberated women from some pretty terrible fashions. Just because we needed the metal. Right. Okay. Right. And the so, bodies to be useful. Yeah. So there's so many other stories. We didn't even get to Byron's daughter. Right. Ada Lovelace. I'm happy to talk about it. All right. Her. Let's let's do Ada quickly and then Audrey Hepburn. Let's do a little bit on Audrey Hepburn and a little bit on Ada Lovelace. So Audrey Hepburn I had a, a personal experience with Audrey Hepburn when I first moved to New York in 1992. I worked at Macy's at Herald Square at, 
behind the fragrance counter. It was not a spritzer. The spritzers were male models that were in front of the counter. Um, I was a specialist behind the counter. So kind of I would use the male model. I'd cast him out and hopefully <laughs> as bait to, to lure in the customers. Um, so you, you, you closed the deal. I closed the deal. You closed the yes. deal. Okay. Yes. You were the perfume deal closer. Yes. And – Another time when we have another hour, I'll explain to you just how terrible I was at this job. As as good as you were at your baseball career that went <laughs> from 1979 to 1979? You know, it's a draw there. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my one season Little League career. Um, uh, one day, celebrities would occasionally come through. One day, Audrey Hepburn came through. And the floor Whoa. fell. Yeah, and the floor fell silent. She was there for the annual flower show in April of 1992. She had no cervical curve. Like when she went so – I can see her in my mind's eye now coming from left to right, passing my counter and it seemed as if she was floating, really. Um, and um, – Was she tiny? She wasn't tiny. Mm -hmm. She wasn't tiny. Um, no. I think she was maybe a, a, a little shorter than average height. I mean she was slender. Yeah. And um, – she had the body of a dancer, yeah. which she had been early yeah, in life. Yeah, that's the way I always think. And she'd hold her feet that way. Right, in first position, like yeah. that kind of, yeah. Um, uh, and I actually, and then cut to a few months later, I remember seeing that um, on the day after Bill Clinton's inauguration, I remember, I can see it now at a kiosk, seeing the USA Today front page, obviously the inauguration of the president dominated the front page, but then in the little box at the bottom, the reefer box, yeah. you know, see inside, I think it mentioned Audrey Hepburn there. And I thought, what a weird twist of fate that she happens, this great screen icon happened to die in this day and a lot of people won't even realize it. Yeah. Um, but through the subsequent 25 years, I noticed how she just persisted in on social media. You see her trend iconically all the time. And and listen, her career was only about 13, 14 years long. There yeah. were other actresses like Ingrid Bergman, like Catherine Hepburn, that had bigger careers, but they're not remembered in the same way. You don't see them trending on Twitter. I like mean, a Audrey, millennial would know the name Audrey Hepburn. I have talked to women just out of college now, too, have told me, and I've heard from others uh, through my colleagues, um, two told me um, that I ran into randomly told me she's all over Instagram. I love her so much. I've never seen any of her films, though. So they, there's something they love about her. So you don't think it's Breakfast at Tiffany's that – I think that iconography is certainly a big part of it. But I wanted to answer the question, what is it? What's punching mm -hmm. through? What is it about her that we're so attached to? It can't just be some accident. Just It can't be that – you know, post-mortem, she has a great publicity team working overtime. That's <laughs> right, not the case. Right. And there's got to be a reason that that she that she captivates us still. Um, I talked to her, both of her sons, and they impressed on me what an impact the war had on her and that she almost starved mm. when she was behind the blockade, the Nazi blockade, trapped in Holland as a young girl, and that she did indeed raise – money through secret dance performances for the resistance. Um, she's that person we want her to be, and mm -hmm. she was. But when I went back and looked at her movies, I saw that experience, what she went through in the war, that gratitude for having yeah. survived it. 
And the empathy? The empathy. I could see it in those film roles. I could see it when she's on the Vespa in, you know, as in, in, in Roman Holiday when, you know, she, in Roman Holiday when she's Princess Anne and she's incognito as a as a commoner. With the scar. And she's just so happy to be free as she's riding through through Rome. You can see it in Moon River. There's a plaintive quality when in um in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um and I think it comes back mm. to this experience that she had. And her, her younger son, Luca Dotti, said to me, I, he, he agreed that it was a combination of, of gratitude and, and empathy. And look, she was Angelina before Angelina. She was doing yeah. you know, the UNICEF going all over the world um, to raise awareness about underfed, malnourished yeah. children. Early, when it wasn't in and it couldn't easily or quickly be broadcast. Right. That's right. And so I wanted to I wanted to find I wanted to get to the heart of what it was that continues to draw us. And I think that's I, I'm I'm sticking to my guns on this one. Yeah. It 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 um so unfortunately we have run out of time. Uh we have been talking to Mo Rocca, who's New book is called Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. And um, here, here's what I would share with our listeners. Only run out and buy this book immediately when it becomes available or pre-order it from your independent bookstore if you want to have a good time and smile and learn, because you will. Well, so, Mo Rocket, thank you so much. I thank you very much, and I want to. <laughs> I want to go to independent bookstores and talk about it. Well, yeah, it would be such a fun night. Independent bookstores will be inviting you. I hope they do because I'm telling you, I'm good in the flash. <laughs> <laughs> I'll affirm that. I'll affirm that. All right, thank you so much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.